Hi, and welcome. Today I'm talking with Johnny Langton. He's a teacher of history and politics, and he also runs the Kings and Queens podcast. As you know, I love talking to scholars, students, academics, amateurs, and fellow podcasters. And although the topics here are not always Canadian, I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now it's time for some scandalous history, eh? Today I'm talking with Johnny from the Kings and Queens podcast, and I'm really excited that he's here. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great. It's great to uh, finally get on another podcast and to talk about something completely different. Uh, so it's really exciting. Yeah. So good segue, actually. How about uh, you present your topic? What are we talking about today? Today we're not talking about any king or any queen. We're going to talk about Watergate, which is probably the it's been described as the biggest political scandal in American history. Some may disagree. Some may go for I don't know Bill Clinton maybe, but I just don't think it. I think it pales in comparison to Watergate. And Watergate, in a nutshell, is a burglary that went wrong in the Democratic headquarters that brought down a president. And the story which culminated over just a two-year period, managed to bring down a pretty powerful and pretty reputable president at the time, Richard Nixon. So that is the story, which I'm going to try and share with everyone today. It does sound quite complex, so let's untangle it. But first, I'd actually like to ask you, so how did you get interested in Watergate? What led you to that type of history? Well, I mean, throughout school and throughout most of the university, I studied history. But in my last year in uni, I started studying a bit politics. And it was a completely different dynamic. I was suddenly studying the nuts and bolts of how government operates. And I first learned the power and struggle of the sovereignty of a presidency, which I hadn't really done before. Most of history, you learn about foreign policy, right? You learn about all the ventures of all these different leaders. And certainly with regard to America, that is where the president is strongest. But suddenly I was learning about the vulnerability of presidents and how they can be, uh, how their downfalls are orchestrated from all different angles. And eventually the kind of case study of that was Watergate. And we found out how easily it can happen. With Watergate, it's a comedy of errors. And in the end, all the president's men just fell like dominoes and threatened democracy after that. And the story is just extraordinary. And I just held on to that. And in the end, I actually did my dissertation on it because I was that enthralled with the story that I decided to write my big piece on it. Dissertation's like a thesis in America, I think, similar. So that's where it started. And ever since I've been very much interested in, in all American politics, particularly scandal. <laughs> Well, like any other country, there's lots there. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. So let's place it in time for those who might not have heard of Watergate or are not very familiar with it. It's from, well, the, the original break-in was 1972. It was at a time where the big political hype was around Vietnam. And in particular, the promises of Nixon when he came into office was to de-escalate and eventually um, pull American troops out of Vietnam. What actually happened was... 
the opposite and it was escalated and they actually brought in another country in Cambodia and started bombing it. It saw the biggest protest in history of America at the time, about half a million people marched on Washington in May 1971. The country was really angry at the time and all that happened then was Nixon became incredibly more so, more paranoid and just filled of anguish, filled of worry about how he's going to solve all these problems. So it was all around the world, there was protests all around the world about Vietnam and America was being painted as the villain in particular around this time. And that's the setting really for uh, for when Watergate happened. And I'm guessing that you're going to explain why it's called the Watergate scandal at some point. <laughs> yeah, that comes into it, don't worry. Okay, good. <laughs> Because it's not called the Nixon scandal, so that's a little bit of a misnomer, I guess, for those who don't know. Um, I guess we just start at the beginning. So Richard Nixon was president, or is that not the beginning? Is it somewhere else? Um, yeah, he is president from 1968. But before then, just in terms of the behavior of presidents, Nixon, this all came from the fact that Nixon was paranoid. And what he'd do is he'd, he'd play dirty tricks. So often what would happen in the White House and the um, the FBI and, and CIA and these organizations is to get ahead of political enemies. They would bug them. They would bug their officers, record them so they could get ahead. They would harass people and often they would also intimidate people as well, quite quite significantly. This didn't start with Nixon. JFK, John F. Kennedy, he wiretapped people who wiretapped Hanson Baldwin, who was uh, a New York Times writer who was threatening government leaks, and they wanted the source for national security. Not only did they bug his office, they bugged his home. They broke into his home and bugged it, right? This didn't start with Nixon. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt used to harass opponents. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson bugged Martin Luther King, and also JFK did as well. They learned where he was at all times. Lyndon B. Johnson also bugged his his opponent, his Republican opponent, Barry, Barry Goldwater. Um, so the point is, this was common. This was no new phenomenon. Nixon just got caught, okay, and explain exactly how he got caught. It all started basically around the Vietnam thing. Vietnam was becoming a real issue. And when it really became untenable, I suppose, when Nixon decided he needed to do something about it, was the release of the Pentagon Papers in 1971. These were top secret documents, and they detailed the escalation of a war under Nixon, in particular Cambodia. So the country was incensed. They saw these had come out in the papers, and it just made Nixon even more paranoid. And a guy called Daniel Ellsberg was actually the culprit. There's a film called The Post with... Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks in, in The Post, um, they detailed the case. So this was the prelude to Watergate, really. When this happened, they went after Daniel Ellsberg. They were obsessed with getting him. What he did next was he asked the FBI to bug phones, open mail, break into homes. They wanted the FBI to eliminate their political enemies. The FBI refused to do it. J. Edgar Hoover, who was head of FBI at the time, was on his way out. He didn't want anything to do with it. So what happened then, and this is key, the White House set up their own intelligence. So they began a secret police operation in the basement of the White House. So this is where it all started. They 
took it into their own hands and they started their own intelligence, the White House. And this is all um, from pressure from Richard Nixon because he's so paranoid. He he was so paranoid about the Kennedys in particular, even though by this point they were both dead, right? He was still obsessed with this conspiracy that was out to get him, that there was one White House member of staff in the West Wing who had a picture of John F. Kennedy on his desk. He saw it and he ordered it to be removed. Don't want anything to do with Kennedy in this place. That's how paranoid he was. It was just some normal minion, some aide who had a picture of him. Didn't want it anywhere near the White House. This gives you an idea of what Nixon was like, what the character was. They employed Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt. These are the two people they employed to do their dirty work, their former FBI and former CIA. So they were going to do all the dirty work for the White House. The Brookings Institution had more papers after the Pentagon. Richard Nixon was so paranoid he wanted to get them. The plan was to firebomb the building. That's how determined they were that these papers were not going to be published in the same way. They were willing to set the place alight. He thought he could blackmail Lyndon B. Johnson with the report because it's about Vietnam in the past, right? So he could nail him with that. They wanted to set the place alight, which is just incredible. Didn't happen in the end. Instead, they thought we're going to smear Daniel Ellsberg, who released the original Pentagon Papers. How they did that? They broke into a psychiatrist's office. So he actually had therapy. They wanted to break into his office, get papers to smear Daniel Ellsberg. So these are the lengths they were willing to go, go through uh, to actually get it. They employed five burglars, along with Hunt and Liddy, the two people who are in charge of intelligence. And they broke in and it was really sloppy and botched. They could have got caught there and they actually got away with it, which was very lucky. They should have stopped there, to be honest. But they got away with that. Um, but then it was becoming more and more of an organisation and they wanted to get some real surveillance ahead of the general election, uh, general election, the presidential election in 1972. So that was the big, big moment. They were coming up with a plan to make sure Nixon won his second term in office. So Nixon had his first term and this happened during his second term or just around that time? So it was around that time. This was in the year before his second term. So 1968, four years later, by November 1972, this would be the election that would give him a second term. He was determined to get it. He set up the CREEP, which was the uh, the acronym which was uh, played upon later with ridicule, the Committee to Re-elect the President. They were in charge of making sure Nixon won that election by any means possible. They set the intelligence team, the burglars, Hunt and Liddy, were now part of Creep under a guy called John Mitchell. So this committee would come up with all these crazy ideas of how they can make sure that the Democrats are painted in a terrible light and the Republicans are seen as the only ones to leave the country. It was at this point where they discovered that Liddy was somewhat of a live wire. At one point, the deputy of Creep, who was called Jeb Magruder, he had a misunderstanding with Liddy where they needed to see to someone. Liddy assumed that he needed to murder him and he was very willing to do so. Larry O'Brien, who was a Democratic chairman. So he walked out of Magruder's office, right, then I need to kill him. Luckily, he was caught just in time. So Liddy was, was, an, was an orthodox, to put it that way. 
Um, how the plan actually came about, Liddy was in his office presenting his ideas of dirty tricks. This included, for example, abducting and drugging anti-war movement leaders. He even planned to lure Democrats at their convention with a houseboat filled with prostitutes to get them in compromising positions to get information from them. These are all ideas that were discussed in the office of the Attorney General, who was John Mitchell, who was Attorney General at the time. It's crazy that the Attorney General's office was the place where these ideas were actually discussed, and it's all true. At which point John Mitchell, who was Attorney General, became creep head, said, okay, these ideas are crazy, let's come up with something sensible. And the sensible thing was to break into the Watergate complex, the name of the building Watergate. This is where the Democrats were leading their campaign efforts. So that's that's basically that was basically it. In the end, all it came down to they were going to burglar, bug it, and steal files. So the first step, I guess, in this whole story is planning of the burglary. That's what it seems like you're you're saying. So they planned the burglary as part of a bigger or other ideas. They figured these this was the lesser of two evils. They did, yeah. They they realized that this was probably more sensible. This was more achievable. Liddy should probably not be in charge of coming up with plans anymore, maybe just executing the plan. They were getting big, a lot of pressure from two guys, one called Bob Holderman and the other called John Ehrlichman. They were described as Nixon's left and right arm. That's how important they were. No one got to the president unless it was through these two men. Holderman was chief of staff and Ehrlichman was chief of domestic affairs. So they were basically always there in his office. They put real pressure on John Mitchell. We need intelligence now get it done. So Mitchell signed off on it. He always denied it afterwards, even when he was a spoiler in prison. He still denied that he signed off, but his deputy Magruder said he did, and I believe Magruder. The crazy thing is the White House didn't need to do this. They were way ahead in the polls, way ahead. They were heavily favoured to win the election. Uh, the Democrats were nowhere. They didn't need to do it, but they went ahead and did it. And that comes down to Nixon's extreme paranoia, in my opinion. So that was a setup for the burglary. Um, the burglary, they went in first to bug Larry O'Brien's office, the chairman of the Democratic Party. They found his door was locked, so they could only bug his secretary. So they bugged his secretary and they got away with safe. But then they found when they listened to it, all they got were hair appointments, details of luncheons. They got nothing important, so they had to go back again. It's when they went back again that was disastrous. Hunt and Liddy were across the road in a hotel room. They were the listening post for burglars. Five burglars, four of which were Cuban. Okay, that comes important later on. They were Cuban veterans from the Cuban Missile Crisis. They went in. The one who wasn't was called James McCord. He had access to the building. He taped the doors. For those of you not sure what that means, they take a tape, they put it over the lock so that when you close the door, you can still open it even if it's locked because it hasn't actually touched, right? So it looks as though the door is shut when it's not really. The problem was, and this was demonstrated by my professor in university, when you tape a door um, across, you can see the tape. So they taped it across the door so it was perfectly visible instead of along the frame of the door, which they should have done. So what happened was when James McCord went and taped the door, a security guard saw it untaped it. When McCall came back with the burglars, they noticed the tape's gone. Hmm, maybe someone's seen it. 
instead of maybe taking the hint to abort the mission, they put the tape back on and walked through and continued. The security guard came back 10 minutes later, saw the tape was on again. Guess what he did? Call the police, as you would. So they got arrested immediately. The police found them. Three policemen found five people in business suits and rubber gloves rummaging around in Larry O'Brien's office. It's a comedy of errors. They got caught so easily. And that was that. The actual burglary isn't that... Um, it's not. It's very simple to understand. It was just a terrible burglary led by idiots, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So were they actually able to do anything before they got caught? Like, were they able to bug anything before they got caught? I would say not. And if they did, the bugs would have been found immediately. So the initial bugging from the first burglary was probably all they got so they didn't get any kind of any material from that first bugging so they had Holderman and Ehrlichman were back in the rear saying this is rubbish you need to go and do it again you need to do something better okay you need to think of a better idea so that they went back in and did it again so the burglary was the last step for the bugging or was there more that happened after that permitted them to bug it again or bug it properly it kind of stopped there because what happened then was the cover-up. So that was the big thing. And it became very clear within days that they were in, in a bit of trouble. And as for bugging after that, they may have bugged, but that's not particularly consequential. Um, all the effort went into, right, we need to try and cover this up to save our backs. And the dominoes fell one by one. So the immediate danger after that uh, were Hunt and Liddy. Soon as they were in danger, it went back to Magruder. Then it went back to Mitchell. Then it went back to Haldeman Ehrlichman. Then it went back to uh, Nixon. And that's how it happened, basically, which I'm going to try and explain how that happened. Yes, I was going to say, okay, now this is the part I think that requires a little bit of untangling, right? This is the complicated part. So if you want to jump into it, I appreciate it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, when the, when the FBI first found it, they found... Um, what they said was a third-rate burglary. They thought it's probably a rogue Republican who's gone out of his way to actually go and burgle to find information. What they found was sophisticated equipment and key to this, they found six grand in cash. Suddenly they went, okay, well, maybe it's a bit more serious than that. In the early days, Woodward and Bernstein became famous through Washington Post. They were the two people who helped uncover the whole mess of Watergate. They lifted the lid on the investigation, uh, later going through their source, who was called Deep Throat, who was in the FBI. So they got the information from the FBI and released it that way. Um, and it first garners attention when McCord, who's a head burglar, and uh, the guy who put the tape on, reveals he was in the CIA. As soon as that happened, it got a bit of attention. And then suddenly it was hitting the newspapers, right? The FBI broke into the hotel or gained access to the hotel through the keys that were found on the burglars, where Hunt and Liddy were staying, have since escaped. They found an envelope in there with a cheque signed by Howard Hunt, and it was for a country club, and it was worth $6. And the burglar was supposed to post it, but instead didn't, and they found that immediately. Howard Hunt, right, they found them straight away. Howard Hunt's involved. They also found a dress book with Howard Hunt's name next to it, W.H. Whitehouse. They also found a number underneath, Within 12 hours, they, they linked it back to the White House. It's incredible. It's like, there's, there's just no accounting for common sense here at all. Woodward and Bernstein call the White House number and confirm Hunt is an employee. 
which he was. He's got an office in the White House. And they found him. And there's quite a famous line in a film called All the President's Men, which I recommend if you want to watch the drama from the Washington Post side of it. When they finally uh, got hold of me, shouted, good God, hung up and left town. So Hunt was Hunt scarf but he left. What happened then was James McCord, it became knowledge from the FBI and Woodward and Bernstein that not only was he CIA, he was head of security at the campaign to re-elect the president. So he was a, an employee of the White House, but not only the White House, also the campaign. So they had two trails. They had the CIA trail, the Hunt trail, and McCord, who were both White House employees. So immediately, within 12 hours, they had two very good leads. What happened in terms of the top brass of, of the White House is Nixon was actually coming back from Moscow. He, he'd had a very successful foreign tour um, where the Cold War was thawing, I suppose, in a way. He'd been to China recently as well. The top brass, Ehrlichman, Haldeman, these people were at a Hollywood party. They were celebrating miles away. The first time anyone knew about it was when Liddy sent called Magruder, the deputy of Creep, in a panic and said, you know, we've been caught, what are we going to do? And Magruder was like, well, don't worry, there's, there's no link there, it's fine. And then he said, well, there is because I use McCord and he's um, head of security, which Magruder said he didn't know. So then he realised, oh, we're in trouble here. We've got someone right there, an employee of Creep, who has just been arrested. And that was it. That's, that's, that's the setup, really. So before Nixon probably knew the details of Watergate. He was kind of, he was already in a world of trouble without realizing it. So I guess at that point, that's the start of the cover-up, or start of the details that they found about the cover-up. So what happens after that, once the government understands that it's from the White House, it has a connection to the White House? So that was on the early hours of Saturday. Early hours of the 17th of June, 1972. On the Monday... Um, Haldeman starts burning files in the White House. All these espionage files that get sent to the White House from Creep, he starts burning them. Jeb Magruder starts burning the Creep files from his office. Richard Nixon comes back from Florida, where he's been having a little break after his trip to Moscow. Uh, they start burning files. He's updated uh, Monday night. And from that moment, Nixon's involved in everything. Don't think he's just in the background. Oh, what's going on with that? There are daily conversations that they have tapes of, of him talking in detail. He's obsessed with it. He's obsessed with Watergate. It's, he loves it in a kind of weird way. Bob Holderman, his chief of staff, actually suggests admitting to it immediately. He says, what we should do is we should just say, this crazy man, George McGovern, who was the Democratic candidate, we're worried that he's going to win the election and sell America to the communists. We did it. We'll handle the repercussions. Nixon says, no, we'll cover it up. Okay. And they start covering it up slowly. John Mitchell, head of Creep, says to Liddy, go and meet the new attorney general, who's called Richard Kleindienst, at a golf club. And he says, you need to release McCord right now because he's a member of Creep. You need to get him out of prison because he's trouble for us. He says no. He flips out. He says, no, I'm not doing that. But he doesn't report it. If he had reported it, then he could have landed Mitchell in trouble very quickly. Uh, Magruder at this point says, I'm done with Liddy. I don't want to see him again. He's a total nut. He's crazy. So a guy called John Dean takes over. John Dean is the White House counsel. So he meets Liddy in a park and Liddy says to him, I know that this is a mess. I know I've screwed up, but John, I'm a soldier. Just tell me where to stand in this park at what time and you can shoot me. 
He actually says that to John Dean. So he's a bit of a, yeah, he's a bit odd. John Dean says, well, no, I haven't come to that yet, but, you know, uh, let's try and sort this out. So what happens then is his big plan, actually, we'll get to that in a minute. First of all, the FBI and Woodward and Bernstein follow the money. That's the next kind of thing. They follow where the money went. So they were these burglars were paid, right? They follow the money all the way to a bank in Mexico, and they find out the money came from Creep. So the money came straight from Creep's back pocket. Bernstein calls John Mitchell and says, we know where the money came from. John Mitchell threatens him and says, yeah, you're in a world of trouble. If you publish that story, you're going to get it. Not only do they publish a story, they publish his quote. So they're not scared of him. And John Mitchell's suddenly getting a lot of attention. You'd think at this point, well, they've one of the head burglar is an employee of Creep. The money's been traced back to Creep. It's clearly the president. No. Pack Ray, the head of FBI, who's a bit of a Nixon loyalist, he thinks it's a CIA through Hunt because Hunt's CIA. So you think, oh, it must be CIA. So Pat Gray blamed the CIA instead of the White House. This would play perfectly into Nixon's hands because Nixon now had a plan. What he would do is he would instruct Ehrlichman to talk to the CIA. He would say to the CIA, four of the burglars are Bay of Pigs veterans. This will open up the whole Bay of Pigs embarrassment for the CIA. It was a botched mission, the Bay of Pigs, and the CIA were largely responsible for that. They tried to imply that this burglary had something to do with the Bay of Pigs. What the CIA would then be instructed to do would be to talk to the FBI and to tell them to halt the investigation. This worked well because the FBI thought the CIA were responsible. So a bit of a recap, I'd say. McCord, CIA and Creephead. You've got Hunt who's CIA, you've got Liddy who's FBI, Hunt's got an office in the White House. More towards the White House than CIA, I think, but no, they actually go and they claim it's it's got to be CIA. So when Pat Gray has the CIA calling him up and saying stop the investigation, that would confirm his inkling that the CIA were responsible. So it plays perfectly for the White House playing those organisations against each other. So the investigation's actually halted. So it kind of works. What they do then is John Dean, who's the counsel, drills open the safe, Howard Hunt's safe in the White House, takes his files, gives them to the FBI. So they're cooperating with the FBI, wink, wink. Pat Gray, Nixon loyalist, doesn't give the files to his investigators. Instead, he burns them. So he gets rid of them. So at this point, you think, OK, well, maybe things are going to work out quite well. So that's the cover-up plan, and it all was orchestrated by Richard Nixon himself. So at this point, I guess Richard Nixon thought that things were okay, but because we're looking at it, you know, from a further perspective where we know that it's not okay. So what happens after this? What's the next step into this scandal? Well, Pat Gray is quite happy for the case to rest. His investigators are not. So they're chomping up a bit. They're putting a lot of pressure on Pat Gray, right? We want to continue this investigation because we've got more leads. We don't think it ends there. Um, eventually, the CIA say to Pat Gray, you don't continue this case. We don't think it has anything to do with Bay Pigs. We were sceptical all along. Continue it, fine. $250,000 are paid to the burglars and Howard Hunt as hush money. Don't say anything. Let's leave it at that. We'll pay you. We'll pay all your legal fees, etc. Just take take it and you'll be paid for it. Gordon Liddy is now a suspect. He becomes a suspect. So what happens then when Magruder has to 
go in front of the court and explain where this hundred thousand dollars of creep money came from so this money that was paid to the burglars and to lydian hunt why has it come from creep what was that about magruder goes on uh, goes to court on oath and says well what happened was i gave it to liddy to actually do some campaign work but liddy is a wild rogue he went and spent the money without permission on whatever he wanted he was actually coached by john dean to actually perjure himself which is what he committed perjury so the burglars liddy and hunt were all charged and it stopped there for now nixon was swearing on revenge he was a, he was a rabid he was like no matter what happens now the people who try to do us in god knows who these people supposedly are maybe Woodward and bernstein they're gonna get it he was set on revenge what's worth noting at this point is the public were tired of hearing about it it was a dying story it sounds dramatic at the time the public didn't care about it if you'd mentioned watergate to the average citizen of america at that time first of all only half the population knew what it was and the other half would roll their eyes at the mention okay uh, whatever it's done only the washington post was still running stories and there was pressure on them that they didn't actually have much it led up to the election so when they got charged the election campaign was in full swing november the 7th 1972 nixon won an absolute landslide 49 out of 50 states he won he won the largest margin of victory of all time at that time he'd won the large until reagan i think um beat his record so why did he go through all that trouble of espionage and building intelligence god knows maybe you can answer it because i don't know so at this point he gets the result that he wanted and it doesn't end there it keeps going right what happens next that is not the end of Watergate, of course not, no. It goes quiet for a few months, though, because um, everyone's in election fever. So we have a nice Christmas. I'm sure Nixon had a lovely Christmas. He thought it was probably solved. We can all relax. What happened then is on the 7th of February, a committee was set up to investigate Watergate. So all of a sudden, oh no, they set up a committee and they plan on grilling all these charged men, all these burglars, Hunt and Liddy. They're going to be grilled by Sam Irvin. He was a very fierce Democrat, a uh, Southern Democrat. He took no prisoners. He had a fearsome reputation. So this uh, scared the White House. What happened next is Howard Hunt blackmailed the White House. He realized the power he had. He wanted $120,000 paid to him, just him. And his threat was, he said, I would bring down John Ehrlichman to his knees and put him in jail. How? The Ellsberg burglary, the psychiatrist's office, was signed by John Ehrlichman. So he he had first-hand knowledge and maybe even evidence, who knows, that Ehrlichman signed off on the burglary. So he had explosive evidence that could bring down Ehrlichman. So Nixon knows this. He, know, he knows all that's going on. He knows all about Hunt. So that was something they had to do immediately. They paid Hunt off. They thought, okay, problem solved. No. On the 23rd of March, on the day of sentencing, it wasn't Howard Hunt who kicked off the fuss. Judge Sirica read a letter to the court and it was received by James McCord. James McCord wrote a letter, one of the burglars, and he said in that letter three things of consequence. He said there was political pressure to remain silent. Perjury occurred during the trial. Others involved had not been identified. So he said all these three things to the judge who read it out in court and the media had it. But they, they don't know who those people are. James McCord knows. So all the newspapers, all the newspapers were at James McCord trying to get this information from him, including Woodward and Bernstein. The very next day, 
John Dean tells Richard Nixon that there's a cancer in the presidency and we're in deep trouble. Nixon says, well, how much do we need to pay these people off? And John Dean says, a million dollars, a complete ballpark figure. And Nixon says, we can get that, no problem. That's a famous tape. That's one of the consequential tapes. So you think, oh, God, Nixon is, com- is completely easy. He's a slime ball, right? He, he, there's nothing he won't do. He's, yeah, exactly, he's crazy. Um, but the committee wouldn't start for two months. So those names of those two people who are apparently, well, these people who are involved weren't identified. The committee was adamant they needed to keep the media away from James McCord, but it failed. The LA Times broke it. And the two names that uh, John Dean actually revealed, do you want to have a guess? I'm guessing it wasn't the other burglars. So he said it was Jeb Magruder, who's deputy head of creep, and he said John Dean. Okay. So John Dean is suddenly in the firing line. So he's encouraged by Richard Nixon to write a report, actually explaining his side of the story. What Dean thought immediately, and was probably correct, is he was now the fall guy. Now, the difference between this and other leaders who would be other people who would be indicted was Dean now was not protecting the president anymore and was completely and utterly protecting himself. Because Dean is a lawyer, he was well ahead of the game. He got himself his own lawyer and he sought immunity. So the way he could sort immunity, seek immunity, was that he could bring down his co-conspirators. And he did that. And that's when the rest of the White House fell. I don't think Watergate would have been possible. I don't think Nixon would have fallen if it hadn't been for John Dean and what he did next. He went straight to the prosecutors. Now, Bob Holderman, chief of staff, realised what Dean was about to do and he called him and he came up with quite a good line, I think. He said, you know, John, as soon as a toothpaste is out of the bottle, it's very hard to get it back in. And Dean in a later interview went, well, the toothpaste came out that day. Okay. Dean gets his immunity and he starts providing evidence against Bob Holderman and John Ehrlichman. He reveals the Ellsberg evidence. So Ehrlichman is suddenly summoned to the committee to give evidence. So now Richard Nixon's left and right arm are now completely and utterly in the firing line. And he actually persuades him to resign. He's really distraught about this Nixon because he didn't want to do it. He's a, they're his best friends. Ehrlichman and Haldeman were actually friends in college. They go back a long way. So he took them to Count David and he had to explain to them one by one that he had to let them go. There's a point after the meeting where Nixon's at the straws. He's actually walking outside and he goes near a swimming pool. And he was at the straw, but his age actually thought that he might try and kill himself. That's how distraught he was. On the same day, he got rid of his attorney general, Richard Kleindienst, told him to resign and he sacked Dean. I'm sure sacking Dean did not conjure the same kind of sentiment from Richard Nixon. On the 30th of April, all four were gone. So now what happens is all those major players, John Mitchell, John Dean, Bob Holderman, John Ehrlichman, all of them were now set to meet the committee or give evidence towards the committee. They were all loyal to the president, apart from a few men. John Dean himself and James McCord would give quite striking evidence against the president. Um, so that's where we were at this point. At this point, they are giving evidence to protect themselves. And at this point... Nixon essentially is just trying to cut everybody from him to say, hey, I'm innocent. I didn't know what these guys were doing, right? That seems to be what's happening. Absolutely. He's, he's trying to cut everyone loose. And you have to 
as far as with Dean being the exception, put yourself in the shoes of these sort of, you could even go as far as called Macalites of the president. They really understand their civic duty as almost servants to the president. They will uh, lay down for the president and the likes of Haldeman, Ehrlichman and John Mitchell did that. And they were loyal and protective of the president to the very end, whereas some people didn't. Senator Howard Baker, who's a Republican, came up with a famous question which got John Dean and he said, what did the president know and when did he know it? Now, the problem is Dean can say whatever he wants about Nixon, but he doesn't really have any evidence. He doesn't have any documents because Nixon's not signing them. Bob, Hol- Bob Holderman or John Ehrlichman are signing off these documents. A lot of them were burned anyway. So where is he going to get this proof from? That was a problem at this point. And he couldn't answer it. What happened then was what was revealed by Alexander Butterfield, who was an aide of Richard Nixon, is that there was a taping system in the White House. Richard Nixon had bugged himself, which is the greatest irony of the whole story, is that the weapon he used to bring down his political enemies is the weapon which would bring down the man himself. Since 1971, now this isn't anything new. All the presidents since FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, have recorded all the all the business in the White House. Nixon actually disabled it and reinstalled it. But instead of previous presidents who actually manually controlled the recordings, Nixon's was sound activated. It caught everything, even down to tour groups, the cleaners, everything was recorded. Even talks with like foreign leaders and entertainers, like there's there's great recordings of conversations with Ray Charles and Johnny Cash. It's got everything on there. But of course Every single conversation included Watergate. And there's 35 conversations with John Dean alone about Watergate that were recorded. So what happened next? The tapes were immediately subpoenaed. So the tapes were uh, summoned by the court. We need those tapes. Nixon refused. Now, here's a question for you. What would you do if you are Richard Nixon? Would you destroy those tapes? Yeah, I was thinking, why didn't they destroy the tapes when they were destroying the files? I, it's such a weird thing to think that they didn't. Absolutely. Um, well, only about three people knew about the tapes. Only Nixon, Butterfield, who's an aide, and his secretary, who's called Rosemary Woods. They're about the only three people who knew the tapes exist- uh, taping system existed. So when John Dean found out that everything was recorded, you imagine the, the glee of John Dean realising that everything was going to be proven. Everything he'd said could now be proven. Whereas Bob Holderman, everything he'd said would be proven to be nonsense, right? So destroying the tapes, they were his private property, so he could have. However, they've been subpoenaed, and I think that's a felony. Compared to what was on those tapes, I feel like it would still be worth it. And in retrospect, maybe he should have, because what is on those tapes is just political dynamite. Um, What happened then is a long, long battle of nearly a year where Richard Nixon tried every single little trick to stop them getting hold of those tapes. He got a new attorney general called Elliot Richardson. He's getting through them, isn't he? What's that, number three, at least? Who appointed a special prosecutor who was not a Nixon fan. He was a bit of a Kennedy loyalist called Archibald Cox. Immediately, Nixon was like, get rid of him. We do not want him. He's going to bring me down. The grand jury issues a subpoena for the same tapes. Uh, Nixon rejects both and he wants Cox gone. Get rid of him. This comes towards the autumn of 1973, so it's near, it's over a year of Watergate already. His vice president, Spira Agnew, is in a lot of trouble. 
he took bribes and had to come out at the same time. So eventually he gets kicked out of office. He, he resigns before impeachment proceedings. He gets encouraged to do that for the reason that if he's under impeachment, then that might encourage his own impeachment, right? So he thinks if he resigns, that's probably getting rid of that potential problem. So for those who might not understand, can you give a brief summary maybe of what an impeachment is? Absolutely. So the impeachment process works probably in three stages. There's, you, there's a committee who will decide whether there are grounds for impeachment. And the committee, as far with with um, Richard Nixon's, was 38. 38 people would decide. 38 people from, from Congress would decide. If they got a majority, this would go to the House of Representatives who would vote on articles of impeachment. They just need a majority of one. If that passes, the president's impeached. Impeachment doesn't mean kicking out of office. It just means it's going to be a trial. Now, that happened to Trump. Donald Trump recently passed because Democrats had a majority. Okay, and it passed into Congress. What happens then is you have another trial. And if there's two thirds of people in the Senate who decide, yes, kick him out, the president is then booted out of office. So it's three stages and Nixon will be faced with that very shortly. But the reason Trump uh, survived is just because the Senate is Republican, is has a Republican majority and they voted on party lines. So, so there was never really much danger of Trump being uh, kicked out of office, though he was impeached. Does that make sense? Yes, I think I, I think it's understandable. So the political processes are always very complex. It is, yeah, especially America. The Constitution is very um, complicated and vague at the same time. It's kind of strange. So what happens with Nixon next is he thinks, right, I'm going to try and think of a compromise to not hand over these tapes. And he gets a very ancient conservative Democrat called John. I think his name is John Stennis. What he's going to do is he's going to listen to the tapes himself and he's going to provide a pre-arranged or pre-provided form where he can tick off what those tapes included, written by the White House. So the White House is going to write a script and say, is this what happened? Yes or no? And then they're going to provide that to prosecutors. It's a real terrible compromise that was obviously going to be rejected and rejected immediately. It was rejected and... Nixon was furious. What happened next was he pressured the Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, you must get rid of him. Get rid of Cox now. And what was called the Saturday Night Massacre, which is a tad dramatic, okay, in terms of a name, Elliot Richardson resigns instead of firing Cox. His deputy, William Ruckel's house, also resigns instead of firing Cox. And third in command was called Robert Bork, who was Solicitor General, finally fired Cox. He fired him because he was pressured by Richardson and Ruckel's house. We need to keep the integrity of the Justice Department. You need to kind of do it. So he did it and then Bork resigned. So if you're keeping up with how many attorney generals have been now, I think we're on five attorney generals. What happened next? Nixon ordered the sealing off of the officers of the attorney general and the prosecutors. Sealed them off, sent the FBI in. This is just outrage for democracy. And the White House received 120,000 telegrams ordering his resignation overnight. His approval ratings dropped. 36 points had dropped by since his election in under a year. 
he'd been from 67% approval to something like 30, just plummeted because everyone realised what Nixon was up to. Hand over the tape. Surely this is a time where he'd hand over the tapes. But no, it continues. So the American public probably thought if he was innocent, he would have just handed over the tape. So there must be something else. And therefore, they start to distrust him. Exactly right. Yeah. So with Archibald Cox gone, Leon Jaworski takes over. He's the new special prosecutor. He is a lot more loyal to Richard Nixon. However, what he wants is Nixon to hand over the tapes. He's almost naive. He thinks, well, why doesn't he just hand them over? I think he's innocent. The tapes will exonerate him. So he says, just hand over the tapes, hand over the tapes. Some tapes are handed over. There's an 18-minute gap, which is wiped out of one of the tapes forever. It's erased. Now, there was a whole debacle over Rosemary Woods, secretary. She apparently erased them while she was on the phone. And the way she did it was she was she had a foot down on a pedal, which is apparently recording the tapes. Her phone goes in her office. She leans over to get the phone. That cuts off a recording in some kind of 70s contraption. I don't know. When she's on the phone, it cuts out 18 minutes like that. She tries. She demonstrated in the office and couldn't reach. So it was nonsense. The new chief of staff called it a sinister force that deleted those 18 minutes. Really, it was probably Richard Nixon who did it. He deleted the gap himself. He deleted the recording himself. We will never know what was in that, but it was probably something outrageous, even more outrageous than what was actually released later on. Leon Jaworski listened to some of the tapes. The one he listened to was the £1 million tape, the one where he offered £1 million to quieten those burglars. So he was outraged. Jaworski changed his tune immediately, and he said, right, we need more. Demand more right now. Nixon, no. What he did instead, he released 1,300 pages of transcripts. He stayed up for like a week to do it, and he just wrote them all out, right? And he said, they do contain rough edges. What he means about rough edges is he's sometimes not so presidential in the way he speaks. And the amount of times that, quote, expletive deleted is actually written down. It outraged what was probably still a very conservative American public. Maybe not so it wouldn't have the same reaction as it as it would today in 2020, but it's, it created a really bad image for the president. I felt a bit unfair. Imagine the stuff that John F. Kennedy was coming out with in his office that would never be discovered. Nixon, it was all there and it was it was very embarrassing for him. But still, no tapes. So at this point, it's been a year. They've been fighting in court. They've been, you know, head to head with multiple people, or Nixon has been head-to-head with multiple people trying to stop these tapes from coming out, and he decides to do the transcript, or a version of the transcript, because I'm guessing that he did not write everything from the tapes yet, right? No, he didn't release them all. No, definitely not. Uh, Just just, um, 1,300 pages is still quite a lot. What happened next was um, impeachment process really kicked in. We're now in the summer of 1974. The Judiciary Authority, which set up to see if there were grounds for impeachment, so that's stage one, passed it on three articles of impeachment. It wasn't unanimous. It was 28-10. Okay, so there's still plenty there who support him, right? But you just needed a, a simple majority. So it was heading to the House of Representatives for um, stage two, which is what Trump got up to, right? Trump was on stage two and then eventually stage three. So if it had passed the House of Representatives, Nixon would be impeached. At this stage, 
Nixon went down south to rally support, drum up support from Southern Democrats. They were the key. They were the ones who would tip the balance in the House of Representatives. He needed their support. Um, so that's what he was doing. At the same time, Nixon lost his battle at the Supreme Court for the tapes. 8-0. Unanimous. Nixon had no choice now but to hand over those tapes. So he did. And that was it for Nixon. On the 5th of August, he released those tapes. The key smoking gun tape, a conversation with Bob Haldeman about playing the CIA against the FBI, was played. And that was what sent him down. The judiciary changed their vote to 38-0. Those 10 changed their minds immediately. At this stage, Nixon was going around trying to see if there was any support left. And apparently, out of all those 100 senators, only four supported him. Whereas Trump, modern day, had every single Republican apart from one. Okay, and that one was Mitt Romney. So he had all of them. And that was more than enough because you need 66 percent. You need two thirds to get it through. And Trump had about 54 percent of them on his side. So he was nowhere near it. Um, Nixon, on the other hand, had only four. Four days later, he resigned. So what kind of pressure do you think he had to resign? Where would the pressures have come from? I think in terms of public pressure, he was pretty much a means of this at this point, surely after the the biggest protest in history was for Vietnam, which was a few years earlier. I think what really hit Nixon was when his own advisors, probably his, his chief of staff, his new chief of staff and all, his, all those people were saying, we're not going to get the support you're done for. There was a Democrat, uh, conservative Democrat, George Wallace, who's quite famous for being against every kind of civil rights in Alabama at the time. He would have been a key um, supporter of Nixon. He withdrew his support. When that happened, he famously uttered to his chief of staff, I've just lost the presidency. And that was probably the moment where Nixon was like, okay, we're definitely done. And he was definitely done. So after he resigned, did everything just suddenly become okay for him? Or were there consequences to all of this? Well, what happened next was, and this is the legacy of Watergate, really. So powerful and so awful was the damage done with regard to democracy. His replacement, Gerald Ford, who was his vice president after Spiro Agnew resigned, he pardoned Nixon. The rest of those people, by the way, I'll go on to those later. He pardoned Nixon. And what happened to Ford then was that was his legacy. So damaging was that pardon that he lost the next election. A lot of it was down to that. In 1976, he lost to Jimmy Carter, the Democrat. And famously, the Democrats released badges. And on those badges was a picture of a man cracking a safe. And the words underneath says, pardon me, Gerald. Right. So they were the anti-Ford badges that went around and they had a massive effect and he actually lost. So not only did Watergate bring down Nixon, it also brought down his successor. The rest of the team, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, Dean, all went to prison. John Dean didn't escape immunity completely. He went down for four months. The rest, about 18 months each. Gordon Liddy got a bigger sentence, four years. Howard Hunt went down. All the burglars went down. Magruder went down. Most of them did, but Nixon didn't. Nixon was pardoned. So he was just allowed to retire as an old president would. He was kind of shunned for a long time, though. He wasn't invited back to the White House for some time. He wasn't part of political life for a long time until he was interviewed by David Frost, who's a British journalist, interviewed him. And it's actually 
uh, dramatised in a film called Frost Nixon. He was interviewed in 1977, and this was Nixon's chance to explain himself, basically. He chose Frost because he believed Frost was quite weak and he could have um, had his way. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't. Frost was quite strong. And what happened then was he was able to extract remorse from the president. He admitted to letting the country down. What he said was, I gave them the sword and they stuck it in and twisted it with relish. I guess if it had been me in that situation, I would have done the same thing. So he's kind of half and half. He is a bit remorseful, but then he's sort of, he does blame other people as well. A bit later on, he has a speech at the Oxford Union of Students. And he says this, he says, you'll be around in the year 2000. Let's see how I'm regarded then. Well, it's not much better, Richard. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's kind of a, a sad legacy, but he didn't seem to have paid, let's say, a like jail time or a fine or something for everything that happened. He's, his punishment is it's tarnished his legacy, I think. Um, it's very, it's, it's one thing to impeach a president, it's another thing to throw him in prison. You know, I mean, South Korea um, comes to mind. Park Geun-hae, who was president of South Korea, was impeached and was put in jail. She's in jail now for, for a long time for corruption charges. That is one of the only democracies I can think of where a former leader is actually jailed. I'm sure there's a few more, but that's the one that sticks to mind. I don't think the country was prepared to put a president in prison. I just, it would probably would have been a bit too much. The public probably wanted it, but I don't think it was ever that likely to happen. Well, I could be wrong. The other legacy of Nixon is the tapes, right? So a lot of those tapes have been released to the public and he calls Indira Gandhi a witch. He said he should have got out of Vietnam earlier. Two million slaughtered Vietnamese children. No one would have cared. These are all quotes from Nixon that have been released. It also exposed a deep paranoia about everyone. He was obsessed with Watergate and that became very clear. The legacy of a presidency it was weak in the 70s after him. Carter and Ford were weak until probably Reagan. Then it became more stable. So it did affect the presidency for quite a long time. Yeah. So I guess that's Watergate. That's in a nutshell, in a, you know, <laughs> a 45 minutes-ish kind of summary with all the players. <laughs> players, I know. Yeah. They... Well, that's where we get the suffix gate from. You know, you see all these scandals that have gate uh affixed to the uh to the word and a lot of people don't know why that they use it anyway uh and it all comes from from watergate i mean one thing which i didn't mention which i'll mention now just in case you do want to put it in it was just after gordon liddy offers to be shot in the park so around that time when um the first few days of the investigation john mitchell his wife called martha mitchell she was a loose cannon. She had mental health problems as well. She was liable to, sport, to talk to the media a lot and be far too honest. At one point, she was at, it was that much of a danger to the presidency. She was actually kept hostage in a hotel room. She was caught speaking to a journalist on the phone about Watergate when the phone wire was ripped out. It was ripped out by a man who's called Steve King. And right now he's actually the ambassador for the Czech Republic. He's still in political office. He got questioned on it by the Senate when he was appointed. Apparently, Martha Mitchell was also sedated in order to keep her quiet. So I like to ask this, and I don't know if I can expect your answer or not now, because I know you also like to talk about the kings and queens of England. But if you had a time machine 
and you could go back to a moment in time to either meet somebody or partake in um, some kind of a historical event, you got to pick one. You can think of like your top three if you want, but what would be the one thing you'd like to see? Now you're safe, you know, the sanitary conditions are good, so you can go in medieval time if you want. <laughs> to be honest, it sounds a bit, probably a bit odd. Probably the Nuremberg rally. I'd like to see, it would be terrifying, but to see a Nazi rally and to see the fervor the, of, of, the, of the supporters of Nazi Germany, just to see what it was like and to see the the commotion, I think that would be pretty special for, for for obviously dark reasons. But it would be it would that would be in there probably maybe the Battle of Agincourt. That would be a good watch probably a bit sick, but that would probably be a good watch. It's difficult. There's no event at Watergate that I would go and see. I don't think because there's nothing. I mean, what am I going to go and sit in Nixon's office? Probably not. Um, I did have one. I didn't think of this a while ago, and I had a really good answer, and now it's gone. <laughs> Is there somebody in particular that you'd like to meet to either have a conversation or even talk to his family or her family? I'd like to meet John Lennon. I am from Liverpool. He grew up very close to where I grew up, and I'd like to have a conversation with him, not so much for historical reasons, obviously, but for, for musical reasons. Um, I'd like to meet the Queen. I know she's still alive, but I just think out of everyone alive, she will have more memories. Obviously, a candid queen is going to tell me everything, which is impossible. I'd like to meet the queen. As far as dead people go, <sighs> Churchill, probably Winston Churchill. I'd, I'd like to meet him, I think. He's got, it's an amazing, amazingly long career. People assume that Churchill died probably of a heart attack because he was obese at like 60. He lived to 90. He was in Parliament for 60 years. He were he he served about um, five monarchs. Like he was he was there for a long, long time and had a long storied career. Um, so he yeah Churchill I think. Those are all really fun answers. They're pretty widespread too when you're looking at you know from John Lennon to Churchill. So that's really good. I don't think these people are necessarily nice people, by the way. Uh, the, the Queen I think is, but they're just they're definitely characters. Eleanor of Aquitaine. She's one I would meet. I don't know if you're familiar with, with Eleanor. She's just fantastic. Um, she she lived to 82. She was so well respected in Europe. She was a real matriarch of Aquitaine and plenty of other lands as well. At age 77, she rode to quell revolts. She was that age, which is ancient in medieval times, let alone now imagine leading a revolt at 77 today. It's not happening, is it? She did that in the... 1200s she's just a real character uh, William Marshall's another one he was around at the same time he served five kings and at age 70 he quelled a revolt as well in London when the French king came over to try and take over from John yeah so they all keep coming to me now but Eleanor she's one of me so you seem to really enjoy people that have had a very long history under different circumstances, you know, like even the queen, the current queen, she's been through war, she's been through, you know, multiple different scandals and all of that. So you seem to like the life story, sort of the, the biopic. Yeah, because it, it's almost like you're getting uh, three for the value of one. You know, if you speak to Eleanor of Aquitaine, she can tell you about three different monarchs. She can tell you about all the French kings. She can tell you loads. 
of, of, um, of stories about all these people, whether she wants to or not. And I'd have to learn French or whatever language she was speaking, maybe Ossetan. Yeah, well, this was fantastic. And as I had said to you prior to the recording, I didn't know very much about Watergate. I'm not super familiar with uh, US history. So this was very enlightening and very interesting because it's not that far away. I mean, it's only, it's less than, you know, 50 years ago-ish. So. Well, it is. Yeah, you're right. And there are actually people who are still alive from Watergate. Most are dead. Uh, John Dean's still alive and he's still very active. He's in his 80s because he was quite young when it happened. He's anti-Republican now. He's very anti-Trump and he's pretty much a Democrat. Gordon Liddy's still alive. He's well in his 90s now. Uh, Butterfield, who released the tapes, he's he's still alive. I think that's about it. But there are some um, old relics still going. Well, thank you so much for telling us all about Watergate and sharing a topic that you'd love to study and to learn more about or, you know, share. (laughs) So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about it. It was really great. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, letting me on. It was great. Thank you so much for that, Johnny. That was a really great summary of what happened during the Nixon scandal. The book recommendations today are The Nixon Tapes, 1971 to 1972 by Douglas Brinkley and Luke Nichter, as well as All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at HistoryA or at HistoryA.podcast. You can also check out the website, HistoryA.com. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message. Also, it would help greatly if you have the time to rate this podcast. It helps people find me, so I appreciate all the effort you put into it. I would like to thank my husband Jamie and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, and the wonderful teachers I've had along the way. Without you, I would not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.